This is the new way we work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain exactly what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor Kathleen Davis. The idea of the midlife crisis started in psychology, but has been in pop culture and the collective consciousness for more than half a century. The image of a balding man buying a sports car is a cliche, but there's a lot of validity to the idea that in midlife, humans go through a transition period and reevaluate their work and its meaning. While this experience isn't unique to one gender, most of the conversation both in the past and present has centered the midlife crisis around men's experiences. But women not only also experience a similar midlife reevaluation of priorities, they are also subject, often in larger ways, to a midlife collision of responsibilities and stresses. Dr. Lucy Ryan is a leadership coach, consultant, and passionate advocate for women's professional development. She's the author of Revolting Women, Why Midlife Women Are Walking Out and What to Do About It. Dr. Ryan coined the phrase midlife collision, and I asked her to explain what she's discovered about how middle age impacts women differently than men. The collision is a term that I use to describe the combination, if you like, of the physical, mental, emotional events that many women face at midlife, Kate. I think menopause mixed with elder care, with financial stressors, often with divorce, with care for our older children, with mental health challenges, that's the collision. It's not a term that's existed before, it's a term that I came up with for my book, but that's what I mean by it. Do you find that it's always gendered? Do men experience a midlife crisis more than women? Do women experience this this midlife collision more? It's difficult to say if it's gendered or not, except for the fact that the midlife crisis, uh, so to speak, which was coined by a, a Canadian psychologist back in the 1950s, is largely used to describe a male midlife calamity, often accompanied by a kind of, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, he's leaving his wife, he's off to buy a Ferrari. It doesn't describe the very serious collision that uh, women face. Now, that's not to say that men don't face it. You know, men can face loss, grief, parental care, children care as well at midlife. It's just that women obviously have the menopause, and still pick up 90% of the care challenges. So they are more likely to experience this roll overload and this collision of stresses than men will. Yes, women kind of always bear the overload of care anyways. And then when all of these things kind of collide, as you say, it's, it's, it's like even more so. You point out in your article that as you mentioned, all these kind of traumatic events in midlife, menopause, aging parents, divorce, children entering adulthood, women often scale back or leave their jobs. What is a different way for both individuals and companies to kind of think about and deal with this period, which as you point out, is temporary? Yeah, I think that's precisely it, which is what is so uh, disappointing, if you like, or upsetting about this period of time is that it is temporary. And yet it is so overwhelming for so many women that all they need to do is press pause. They just need to stop to pause before they might be ready to step back in. And you want two things. A, you want women to know that it is temporary and that it will pass. 
but you really want organizations to have a desire to retain their women and understand that in the longer scheme of things, these women, after they've pressed pause, will, and have some flexibility, will be ready to step up with all the ambition and motivation that they wanted prior to this time. You know, in recent years, there's been so much more, and we talk, we've talked on the show a lot about working parents and, and the challenges of having small children and, and dealing with school schedules and all of that, but we don't talk a lot about the sandwich generation and dealing with aging parents and flexibility around that. What do you suggest that companies can do to kind of acknowledge that this is a period in life and like help retain those women that, because it does make sense. You're, you know, you feel this overwhelm and you're like, okay, well, I guess I I need to quit. I guess I need to go to part-time. Yeah. I think the first thing is that companies have to have a desire to tackle this issue. They have to recognize it the same as you know, we've done with maternity and paternity leave, there has to be a recognition that this really is an issue and that they want to do something about it. So once they've decided to do something about it, then it is a question of tracking it, understanding their data, starting to have much better conversations with their midlife executives, and then starting to put in place the same kind of flexible leave that we've got used to with younger women. That's true. And it's also something, you know, we've started to talk about more at Fast Company. We've, you know, have a couple of or several company ESGs and we have one for aging parents. And I think that's a great way to find kind of community in others in your workplace that have that and start to advocate for those things. Because I feel like parental leave really started to become part of a, a conversation more when there was like a loud drumbeat around it, right? Yeah. And it's what I would call the silent revolution in that for most women, they're actually just doing it on their own. I find it quite extraordinary, you know, with our young children, certainly for me, what happened is you have a whole network of people and everyone, I'll look after your kids, you look after my kids. But when it comes to looking after your dying parents or your parents with dementia, it is so lonely. Mm. And there isn't often that drumbeat within an organization of, I understand, I'm with you on this. Yeah. And it is something, you know, as you say, that people are probably a lot of people are dealing with in silence. Yeah. Yeah. You point out in your book that women over 50 in particular face kind of a double whammy of discrimination in the workplace, both for not being male and for not being young. Aside from the the cliched beliefs that older employees are not as like comfortable with technology, what are some of the other reasons for age discrimination at work, particularly for women? There is a, what I think is a completely mistaken belief that corporations, if you like, are set up for young people. And there is a belief that goes with it that with youth comes energy, creativity, ambition. And with older people, they don't get any of those three things. Whereas actually the reverse is true. You know, honestly, show me a midlife woman, Kate, and I will show you a woman who is so resilient, so full of energy, so full of, right, what next? What next in my career? Once they've got over the hump of midlife, it is that kind of postmenopausal zest. And I think we have to, in these 100-year lifespans and 50-year lifespans, get used to the sense that between 50 and like 75 or 70, there's a whole chunky career waiting for us. 
Yeah, that's such a different way to think about it. We're living longer. And since we're living longer and both personal savings and retirement funds look so different than they did in generations past, you know, we've done an episode about retirement and how the kind of old framework of you have a pension and you work 30 years and you retire is gone. Uh, how, how should individuals and companies kind of think differently about retirement? Because I feel like we're kind of still functioning, even though the reality is different, we're still kind of thinking in that same way of you're going to work until you're 65 or whatever and retire. And that's not the case. Agree. You know, it's as if we're working on two different tracks, isn't it? That we've made age discrimination illegal, but we are still or still working along this fact that at 60, 65, you'll stop, you'll hit the golf course, you'll look after grandkids, you won't do anything else. I think we have to retire the word retirement and start thinking, I would like to start thinking in chapters, like career chapters, and how we're going to manage it. Because Every single piece of data says we need older people within our workforce and we need them at the senior levels as much as at the junior levels. So we've got to literally think differently about it and get rid of this sense of retirement because nobody really wants it. I love that framing of chapters of your career because part of the whole like midlife crisis cliche is that, which is, you know, the kind of not cliche part of it is that you're kind of reprioritizing what does this all mean? What have I done with my life so far? What is the purpose of my work? What should the later chapter, the next chapter after midlife in careers look like? How can people think of that? It's so interesting, isn't it? One of the things that most surprised me in my study was that 70% of the women I interviewed wanted to step up. So I thought we were going to have these conversations about stepping down, stepping out. And it wasn't that at all. They were going, give me more. How do I get back in? How do I have a different career? So there's a sense of post-midlife collision being one of interest and ambition. So I think we need to think about, well, what does this third chapter, let's say 50 to 75 years, um, look like? And how can we make it look creative? So many women I know step, step out because they're bored. All they've got is a linear career presented to them of just there's one more step up for you. And they go, come on, I can do so much more. And at 59, I've potentially got a, you know, another 20-year career ahead of me. And that should be exciting rather than uh, dull. I'm so happy that you're, you're talking about ambition. And I, I wanted to kind of ask about that, of like what comes after this midlife collision. We did a series last year called Ambition Diaries. And it was about, in part, how ambition changes throughout your life. And how it has changed over generations of mothers and daughters. And we talked to both mothers and daughters. And, you know, one thing that some of the the mothers who were all in their 60s-ish range said was that they kind of felt like this was the time they could take more risks and find more meaning. What does kind of post-midlife collision ambition look like? Is it is it about taking more risks? I think it can be. I see it as an enormous time of creativity. So I look at my mum, Kate, who is 95 and still very vibrant. And she started work as a radio DJ at 90. 
That's amazing. <laughs> it is, isn't it? And at 80, she started painting. At 85, she started writing and published three children's books. And then at 90, decides to become a radio DJ. So I think there's a sense of creativity here matched with ambition, with a but, in that, as one of my interviewees, Laurie, said, that ambition has to feed all areas of my life, she said. So it's not just, I want to dedicate my life to a company going upwards. It's a sense of, it's a bit like a tree branches. It's got to feed lots of different areas, but it's certainly not downwards and looking in. It's definitely looking outwards. It sounds like it's too not kind of in, you know, the maybe the earlier chapters of a career when you're about climbing a ladder, making in enough money, you know, taking care of the necessities. It's really the kind of space where you can, like your amazing mother, explore a lot of, explore a lot of new things. Yeah. But I think that doesn't mean that, well, it shouldn't mean a woman has to leave a company to do that. In ideal world, we should be able to explore creative interesting ambition within a corporation rather than having to exit it and do it for ourselves. So I'm wondering, because your article was so popular, it seemed to resonate with people. I think that term that you've coined, midlife collision, like people felt that. They're like, yes, you've given a a phrase to something you're feeling. We've also seen a lot of recent interest in menopause as a topic and a business opportunity. I mean, that's something that as a business, you know, finally, I think people are waking up to like, there's millions and millions of women that experience (laughs) menopause. Maybe we can do something about it. And just also as in a topic of, you know, women are finally, I feel like talking about it more. Do you think the tide is turning that kind of issues of midlife for everybody or women in particular are kind of finally getting the attention they deserve? The tide is certainly turning and there is definitely interest around the menopause. And I'm thrilled that the article is popular, by the way. Thank you for that. So I think there is a double-edged sword to this in that it is thrilling, genuinely thrilling that menopause is becoming a topic we can all talk about. And within certainly the UK, you've got menopause cafes, you have got um, conversations happening, we've got the law changing, we've got the acceptability of HRT, so and more research going into it. What still needs to happen is that we understand the issues of midlife in a broader way. So what I don't want to happen is for companies to go, right, we've done midlife women, tick, got a menopause policy, now I hope they can just shut up. What we need is a broader understanding of these real challenges that women are facing together with the menopause so that child care, you know, our old children care, the mental health challenges, the family care, the sibling care, and their own health issues are taken into account. So it's not just an industry, because the menopause now is a 60 billion industry. So we need to make sure that we're not just capitalising on it, we're actually very seriously trying to address how do we retain and promote our midlife women? That's an important thing that you mentioned of of like, okay, we have this policy, check off that box. Because I think that's something that came up in, in everything that you wrote is that this feels like an, kind of an unthought of 
area of diversity, equity, and inclusion policies, where it's really kind of thinking more holistically about all of your employees? I think so. And, I, you, you know, age is very rarely in a diversity policy. We've come very far with diversity policies, but age and the retention of older women is still not in the vast majority of diversity policies. You're right. So I guess for my, you know, for my last question, I would love to give kind of a takeaway for both leaders and managers and for employees of, you know, if, if you have midlife folks on your team, if you are in midlife, how can individuals kind of advocate for these issues within their companies and how can managers kind of w- wake up and, and uh, support their employees? For women, what I would say, firstly, recognize you're not alone, that Often when women are experiencing a midlife collision, it can feel deeply lonely. And that's why they tend to put their heads down and silently leave. So I think the first thing is to know that they're not alone. And if there's a possibility to advocate for other women, then to do so. And to reach out to other women. And when they are through it, to advocate for other women who may be going through it. And I would say that to uh, my male colleagues too, because without a doubt, some of them will be experiencing midlife collisions too. So it isn't just women helping women. This is about uh, individuals having compassion for everyone experiencing a midlife collision. So, you know, to know they're not alone, to know they'll come through it, and then to do, you know, once they're in a position to do something about it for other people experiencing it. My takeaway for organisations would be to firstly have the desire to do something about it. I know I've said that, but I'll come back to it. So the first thing to recognise that there is an issue for every female director being promoted to a leaving. So the first thing is to kind of take the issue seriously. And then it's about having good conversations. You know, I think it was Gloria Steinem who said that every revolution starts with a conversation. So start having those midlife conversations. Start trying to understand the issue. Start to actually recognise what's going on. Have good conversations. And then thirdly is actually to look at what can a company systemically do to retain their midlife um, executives. And that will require job shares, flexibility, and a new understanding of that third chapter. Those are great points. And I want to dig in a little bit to the job sharing. We did an episode a year or two ago about job sharing. I think it's not something that a lot of, especially American employers, think about. Can you explain kind of some of those those ways to, you know, when we say flexibility, like what are what are those ways that, that employers can, can be more creative there? Let's start with job share. It is much underused. It's underused in the UK too, Kate, that look at who's doing it and look at who's doing well would be my first advice. There are people doing it incredibly well. There are women sharing roles really well. And it actually just requires the retention of two women rather than exiting both of them. There was an example in my book about Laurie, who was resigning that day, was a global HR director, gets into the lift. In the lift is the global talent director, who is also in tears. Literally on the way down, they discuss how they have both resigned that day 
because both of them, oh, Laurie, her, her daughter has anorexia, her mum was dying. She hadn't slept for goodness knows how long with the menopause. And the other woman, her, her dad was dying. They go down, have a coffee. In that period of time, they design a job share, get back up in the lift and represent it back to the HR director. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. It was an incredible story. But Laurie knew that it was only because they understood the system, they understood how to craft a job share, they understood how to present it back, that they managed to make it happen. And they were the first global example of it. And that's that's so great for a company to think about because, you know, we cover all the time the cost of hiring and finding, an, you know, having a job vacancy, especially having a job vacancies at that level with that amount of experience that you're losing and to be able to retain that, that level of expertise, that level of experience be for those women to be able to still have an income and in some cases probably health insurance and all of those things that they're losing if they lose their job. It's literally the definition of a win-win for everybody. I completely agree. And the other thing with flexibility is, same as with maternity leave, there has to be some sort of recognition with parental care. There was a heart-rending interview I did with a woman who only wanted five weeks. Her dad died, and a week later, her mum died. And she was just beside herself with grief. And she just needed five to six weeks just to stop, pause, grieve, and then she was ready. Okay, okay, I'm I'm back on the horse again, but wasn't given that time. And sometimes it just requires this slightly longer-term thinking than, no, we need you back within a week or two. That's something that's always, always got me about bereavement leave, when there's these bereavement leave policies where it's like, oh, if it's your parent, you get three days. And if it's your spouse, you get a week. And if it's like, how can you put a number of days on like, now you're fine and you can go back to work. And the thing about this, you know, when I've been covering parental leave for so many years and the argument was always like, well, I don't, I'm not having kids. Why should I, you know, pay for your kids and all of that horrible misguided argument. We have family medical leave, which covers your own or your family's medical issue, having a child and also elder care. And that's coming for everybody. Like, even if you don't decide not to have children, you don't know, you know, what medical issue might come up. You don't know what might happen with your parents. Like, these are issues that are coming for everybody. So it's an, it's not like you're doing anybody a favor for some, like, select group of people. This is, this is a, a universal thing, yeah. Completely. And that's why we need a much better systemic look at midlife and beyond, because, as you say, it's coming for everyone. And beyond it is something so exciting. Yeah, I really think so. And thank you so much for being here and and coining this phrase. It really hit a nerve. Oh, thank you. You gave words to something I think a lot of people are feeling and gave us a lot of good perspective on it. Thank you so much. Lovely. My pleasure, Kate. Thank you for having me. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you like this episode, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And we want to hear from you. Work is changing every day. What's the most pressing issue on your mind? Email us at podcast at fastcompany.com. The New Way We Work is produced by Joshua Christensen and Julia Shu with editing by Nicholas Torres. 